0: So last last weekend, I got woken by my alarm at 3.30 in the morning. I'm pretty sure God wasn't up then. I'm pretty sure he's more of a 10 a.m. kind of, no. But it was up at 3.30 in the morning to to run up to Portland, get on a plane, and fly down to San Diego to uh, spend a couple of pretty intense days trying to help support a new church plant that's going in in San Diego. In fact, uh, they're kind of actually in almost a year two, but COVID kind of threw things for a loop. Their first public gathering was two weeks before the California lockdown. Uh, so we were down there this past weekend. I'm part of the executive team. We're kind of a kind of an external management team, sort of like an eldership before they're able to have elders. And uh, there's people from all over the United States on that team. So I flew in from, from Oregon. We had a guy flying from Nashville, Tennessee. We had another guy flying from Rhode Island, and, um, and then we had another guy from Illinois. And so we all kind of gathered there. We've all planted churches, and we're there to support Tony and Kelsey, who are the lead planter family. It's actually Tony I met in 2012 when I was on a sabbatical, and I was in New Zealand. And he was part of a church plant in New Zealand. And that church plant was kind of struggling, and they were kind of unsure what to do, not sure if God really was calling them to do this planting work. Then I get a call four or five years ago, and Tony said, I think we're supposed to plant a church in San Diego. Now, they're in the Chula Vista area, very multicultural area. And uh, so Tony and Kelsey... Boy, they're doing a great job. We're there, we were just there for two days this past weekend supporting them. We, we were in tense meetings. We've actually met some of their leadership now that I think will eventually become their eldership team. So we've got a plan for two years. They're going to be self-supported and on their, standing on their own two feet with their own internal leadership course. So we're pretty excited. It was pretty intense. I, uh, I had flew back on Monday morning, and I had to get on the plane at uh, 5 a.m., and so uh, it turns out you can, you can have Uber come get you that early. And, uh, but I feel like I'm still recovering from that. But a great thing, you can see here, they're, they're meeting in a school, and uh, you know, they're set up and tear down every Sunday. Some of you remember our first days as a church. In October, we celebrate 15 years of doing ministry here in Dallas. And we got started just like that with a trailer and gear and had to set up the chairs all the time. And uh, so church planting is part of who we are. And that's why I put the time and effort in, even from our church. As a leader here, I go down to try to support more churches being planted. And that church is going to be a very multiracial sort of church. And they're going to reach people that we will never meet. But we are a church planting church. We got started in 2007. We planted a daughter church in 2011. And uh, and and we are at the heart planters. We want to see God do new things. And someday maybe we'll see God do even more things from our church family, but we are planting church. So I just want to warm the temperature up that because that's what we do. And we see new people come to Jesus. They've had, I don't know, 60, 70 baptisms in just two years, even with COVID. Now they get to baptize in the, the waters there at the shore right there at Coronado Beach, which is pretty cool. But God's doing new things, and that's why we want to keep that at, at the focus. We are a church planting church. We want to see God do new things. All right, so you're like, what does that have to do with Nehemiah? Okay, well, let's get back to where we're at now in the series 52. If you've got a Bible or a device, find Nehemiah chapter 3. We're going to be in Nehemiah chapter 3. Andrew did a great, great job of kicking this off last weekend, so that's where we're going to be. And uh, just by way of introduction, I, I, when I was a kid... We used to do this thing called roller skating, and it was a big deal in the 80s. I think by the time I got to high school, it was kind of phasing out. But like every birthday party, every other kind of celebration, where do we do it? At the, at the skating rink. And is this weird thing where you put these wheels on your feet, and then somehow you're supposed to gracefully go in a big circle. And that's all you do. Uh, some of you that are younger are like, that's boring, you old people. What? We used to do that. That was the big thing. And sometimes they would do weird thing with the lights so it looked like your shirt was like neon. And that was, again, we, we were easily amused back in the day. We were easily amused. But you go round and round, and what would happen uh, eventually is they would do these sort of, the, uh, someone would come on the PA system and kind of lead some different special skates. And uh, I never liked those. But it was like, okay, uh, everybody that's left-handed, now skate backwards. I could never do any of that because I always favored my right foot, so I'd, I always fell. That was me on the floor. That was me on the floor while everybody else was doing their little cool tricks. But those specific skates, they would call out, and then they'd do like couple skate, you know? And I, back in the day, I, I didn't have a girlfriend, so I got to sit out. I couldn't, I couldn't participate. And then they would do like this weird thing where they would say, okay, now you people that know this special right foot in... Right foot out, come on now. I was never good at that, so I sat out again. My favorite part, though, was when they got done with all those special skates and they finally said, finally, okay, now everybody, we're going to get all-skate, right? It was an all-skate. And I felt like finally I can, I can be hidden in a crowd <laughs> so that when I fall it won't be so obvious. But I remember that, that all-skate being so great. Well, today in Nehemiah 3... We have a bit of a construction all skate, if you will. It's sort of a divine all skate, but you're not skating, you're building. And that's what we're going to be looking at in Nehemiah chapter 3 today. Everybody got to play, and it was a a major milestone for, for God's people. So just before we pray, I want to just give you a quick introduction to where we're at. Because once we get to the book of Nehemiah, we're actually in the middle of a longer story. And there are several Bible books, actually, that kind of are part of this whole story. You have Ezra, the book of Ezra. And Andrew talked about that last week. In the Hebrew Bibles, Ezra and Nehemiah is one book. And there's really good reason for that because, really, they crosstalk. The first six chapters of Ezra, though is uh, way early in the process. By the time you get to Ezra chapter 7 and then into Nehemiah, you're much, much later. It's hard to know that just by reading through the the stories, but that's where we're at, and we know that because of the kings and the empires mentioned. That's how we kind of know what the time frame is. So we're in the middle of this bigger story that God is trying to do. His people are trying to really get back and sort of restore honor. They want to get back and restore all that they had lost. You see, that first temple was awesome, built by a guy named Solomon, who did an amazing work, but that temple was now destroyed and in ruins, and the city had been ransacked by empire after empire, and God's people, the remnant people, wanted wanted to restore some dignity, restore the city, maybe to a bit of what it used to be, and so that's what this whole project is all about. Wave 1 started in Ezra chapter 1 under a guy named Zerubbabel, hard name to say, but they did good work. Now, Zerubbabel and another guy named Sheshbazar is his name, uh, they come from what is now Persia. It was Babylon and now Babylon, that's out, that's old history, canceled. Now it's Persia. Persia comes in and takes over the world. So we have these empires that are coming in, but, but Persia really wanted to make sure anybody that they conquer that might be a slight bit religious, we want to go ahead and honor whatever your religion was so that you, you can pray for us. And so the, the kings and all that wanted you to pray for them so that their sons would have a great line and, and great royal experience. And so that was part of the favor that the Jewish people got. And so they were, they were able to go back. And now only a remnant went back, only about 50,000 of the larger group that were all still in exile, only a small group went back with Zerubbabel and Sheshbisar. So they go back and they start doing, they start with the altar. Why, is, why do we start with the altar? Again, these kings wanted you all to pray for them. So we got to start with that worship spot. So we get the altar done. And then what would come next? The city walls? No, 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 no. We got to get that temple rebuilt. And so you see that process there early on. We're starting with the altar. Then we got to get that that temple. And and, and you'll find if you read through Ezra, and I encourage you to do that. Some of the people could have been like generations that remembered the original temple. And so when they get the the, the new one done, and it's really, historically, that's the second temple, okay? That's the second temple. When they get it done, some people are like, yay, we're back to worshiping. But then the people that remembered what it used to be were like, boo. It wasn't like Solomon's temple. We remember the, the Solomon's temple. So that's what's going on. The second wave happens uh, with Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, there's opposition all the way through this. There's locals that don't want them to do anything like that. There's maybe some holdover from the Assyrian dynasty, and that's going back in history. But you have some people that really kind of intermixed with the other peoples, and so they weren't really, they, maybe they didn't see themselves as those kind of Jews or whatever. So you have some things going on. There's opposition happening. And at some point, they stopped the whole temple rebuild project uh, for about 16 years. And so there's this limbo, but then here comes our prophets. And the prophets always like to get people encouraged and engaged in the work. So Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi come on the scene. They're like, hey, we need to get back to this. you Quit living in your, your homes and not giving God a home, right? I know that's different than we would say it, but th- that was kind of what they, what they were guilty of. So then they, they got them back on track, and they got that second temple finally completed. And that leads us to the third wave under a guy named Ezra with his Torah buddy, uh, scribe, expert in the law, Ezra. And so that brings that's the third wave. Now, I will make a point here to uh, share with you why we called it 52, if you haven't figured that out already. And by the way, this graphic I know is difficult because it's small, these academic graphics are difficult, but it really just shows that when the project got started in wave one, you're about 538 B.C., And by the time you got Ezra and Nehemiah, you've skipped ahead some 80, 90, 100 years. So it's hard to kind of see, but this is a multi-generational project, right? And right dead center, and this is the, the thing I want to point out here in a second, but there's an important character that shows up in a book called Esther. But hold on, before we get there. In chapter 4 and 5, we find out that what Ezra or what Nehemiah is going to do in chapter 3, the project that he gets started with the walls of the old city, that gets completed in 52 days. Now, I've looked at that number in Scripture, and I can't find any other repetition of that. I realize you're like, oh, 52 weeks of the year. I don't really know that that was the case. I don't know they were trying to do that. But 52 days, they're able to rebuild the old walls of the city. And what does that mean for a city? That means you got what? protection you can you can actually start repopulating it now you have some safety and again the dignity of the people can begin because who's going to come from this group of people just a few centuries later and jesus is going to march through these very gates we're going to talk about right so god is doing amazing things but 52 days my contention is and i'll just leave it here i think there's a reason why in the third wave under nehemiah if you got your Bibles handy, look at Nehemiah. Look at chapter 1 and 2. You remember the story, right? Nehemiah was a poison checker. I know it sounds better to say cupbearer, it sounds much more lofty, but he was a poison checker. I mean, if, if, if the king's going to try some wine, you got this guy to try it first, just in case someone tries to spike it with poison. That was your job. So he finds out about the old city. Oh, old city of Jerusalem and the walls are broken down and it's just sad. So he's sad, spends about what, a couple months praying and trying to figure this out. Then he makes a big request to the king and it says that the queen is right beside the king. And I want to make a contention that the reason the king of Persia was so generous and so whatever you need, Nehemiah, you got. is because I think the queen that was standing right next to that king was Esther. Now, it doesn't say it specifically, but I've always wondered, why did he get everything he asked for? They're even sending an army with them. Like, how did the king, why was he so generous? Because I think a few decades before, there was a whole run-in with Mordecai and Esther and the whole people, the, the whole town of Susa. Where are they at with Nehemiah? Susa. Now, I can't prove that. I'll just let you mull on that for a bit. I think that's what's going on here. But again, multiple books in the Old Testament around this time frame. But we're talking about multiple generations, some 80 to 100 years in this process. Okay, that was the longest intro you've ever heard. So I apologize for that. The title of the message today is, 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 and you'll find out why, Doors, Bolts, and Bars. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. Let's take a, a deep breath. One, two, three. Get a good reset, breathe it out, and let's lean into prayer. Father, you're good and you're mighty. You're doing some great work. You've done it in the past, and you're still doing good work. Father, I pray that you'd help each of us to do our part in the great work you've called us to. Father, speak by the power of your Holy Spirit to everyone here, whether that be online or in person, and may you get all the glory today. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, you have to have your Bible open in Nehemiah 3. I usually don't force you to do that, but. Find it. Find Nehemiah chapter 3. I know that I'm really, you know, nice to look at and all, but get your Bible open because I want to show you something that happens with how the rebuild project works, and there's a reason why. So uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, I'm going to open my trusty English Standard Version, large print, thank you. Here we go. uh, Let's start with uh, Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the Sheep Gate. They consecrated it and and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred and as far as the Tower of Hanel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to them, Zakur the son of Imri built. And on and on. You're like, wow, this is really just like reading some kind of a historical record or a spreadsheet or something here but it goes on and on naming people and the sections that they worked on. But what's cool about it is that actually, there's a process here, that there was an actual process being done by Nehemiah and everybody building the building. So if you have your device, this is kind of a little interesting little follow the dots around, kind of like karaoke, follow the dots. Here we go. So they start where? The Sheep Gate. Now that's important, we're going to talk about that, but they start at the top, the north end is up there, they've got the Sheep Gate going, and if you'll notice, in Nehemiah 3, he starts to carry you all the way around the city, counterclockwise perfectly. That wasn't haphazard, Is my point, we'll get to that. But he, he starts, people are working on different parts of the gate. So we have, uh, the, first of all, Sheepgate was mentioned, right? And then uh, Hananel, I'm not sure I'm saying that right, Hananel's Tower, um, and then the, the Tower of the Hundred. That's where we're at. So by name. Now, over time, some of these have the names changed or, or there were acronyms given. So Sheepgate is sometimes known as a Benjamin Gate, which I'm very partial to, actually. I, I like that name. If I were, I'm, I'd be okay with that. That's my name. Anyway, I digress. So some of these have changed names over time, but most scholars think this is what we're, what we're looking at here. So we got the, the two towers there mentioned, and then as you keep going down, go ahead and do it. Look at, your, look at your Bibles. Look at verse 3. What is the next place that you'd guess is mentioned? Fishgate. Now, why would they call it the Gate? They were hyper-practical back in the day. Probably that's where they brought the fish in. Probably also, the sheep gate is where they brought in the sheep. Now, think about that. Jesus entering the city, there are some scholars that wonder if the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world came into Jerusalem through the sheep gate. Ooh. Now, that's a, we're going to find out that's an important... They also name stuff after what happened there. So, yeah, they probably brought the sacrifices in, the sheep gate. Probably a lot of commerce happened there. But if you'll, you'll notice, this just it carries you around the city. So what do you think the next place is going to be mentioned? Look at verse 6. Yes, can you say it? Yes, Shehanna, the old gate. Now, again, there's some question marks because so we're not totally sure. We haven't found all these spots. But the next place, over and over again, we're going just right down the line. So verse 6 talks about the gate of Yes, Shehanna. And then if you keep going, we get to the broad wall. You see what's happening? Over and over, this is a very intentional rebuild project. Starting with one of the most important gates. Some of the gates that are mentioned are gates that were important for defense. The northern part of the city was important to defend. We'll talk about that. But look at that. What do you think the next place is going to be? Look at verse 11. The tower of ovens. You see it on there? Kind of in the middle, on the the west side there. Uh, Probably what happened there, there were some pizza ovens. what I'm thinking. Okay, that's probably where they did bread and stuff like that. Okay, okay. But maybe there were some pizza ovens. That's what I like to think of it. They were doing some good flatbreads back in the day. Maybe a little sheep cheese on it. I don't know. Okay, I'm making me hungry. I'm hungry. So we get the broad wall, then we got the tower or the ovens, um, tower of the ovens. You just keep moving through this. You got the valley gate coming next. Isn't this awesome? Like, it's going in order. And uh, now you'll notice that I've got two maps and that was almost impossible to read, even that blown up. But I have this other map for a reason because as we get down to the southern part, this is the old city of Jerusalem or old city of David at the bottom. So the old city of David had places like the armory, uh, places where his mighty men hung out. Um, There is some speculation because we haven't found all this yet in the old city of Jerusalem. But that's that's why you have a, a lot of those numbers in here. Like 1 through, what, 6? Because we don't know exactly where those were, but that's what Nehemiah is talking about with some of these places that David would have built. The king's garden, that sort of thing. But you'll notice, as you get to the bottom, we get past the Tower of the Ovens, we get to the Valley Gate that's talked about in verse 13, uh, and then we get to the Dung Gate. Well, it's nicely called rubbish here, but what do you think happened at the Dung Gate? I don't know, I mean... Maybe that's where the garbage was. Um, I'm not sure, but that's down the southern part of the city. You have the rubbish gate or the dung gate. And then we get we start to to move through to the east side. And the east side is the Kidron Valley. Now, if you're on the east side of Jerusalem, if you just faced out east, you would see a line of uh, higher peaks. They're not like mountains like we think of, but the higher peaks, one of them would have been the Mount of Olives. So they're kind of seeing some of those key places that we know so well from from reading Scripture. So that's we're getting to the east side now. You notice there's some pools down here, the spring gate, the water gate. I'm guessing that's where some of the springs were. And so you had to bring them into the city. Uh, Hezekiah's tunnel is around the water gate area. Not the water gate you're thinking of. Different water gate, totally, totally different water gate. But the water gate's probably where they had to bring water into the city. If you remember the story of Hezekiah... Uh, He he built a way for them to get water while they're being sieged. We have found that archaeologically. They found Hezekiah's Tunnel. It's right by the water gate. But here we go. We're we're, we're building all these places in order as they come around the city. Now, you'll notice this if you read through chapter 3, which I encourage you to do. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But you'll notice now, sometimes Nehemiah has people working on sections near their house. Now, why was that interesting? Why would that be something? They're working near their house. Maybe kind of increase the ownership making sure those beams, doors, bars, and gates are set correctly. And let's come back to that phrase. That phrase shows up probably four or five times in Nehemiah chapter 3. Scholars think the reason that the the phrase is in there is because that was an intentional instruction. The way walls worked then were not like a single bit of brick, just standing up by itself. These were generally thicker, and they had kind of inward parts in them. And so when Nehemiah records this phrase, they laid, this is from verse 3, they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. That shows up several times in that same order, meaning that they're doing this right. This is an engineered wall so that it could withstand attack. A single, have you ever done that where you set something up and it's just going to fall right over if there's no supports? This was an intentional build of these walls. But people are building by their their houses, we have the fountain gates, we have the water gates, and we have all of this going on all the way around, and they finally wind up, spoiler alert, where do they think they end up? Back at the sheep gate. That's where they, they end, the whole process is back at the sheep gate. And as we'll see next time, it took them about 52 days to do this work, this engineered work. And they end up back at the sheep gate. Now, we did a a little background as to uh, what, you know, Nehemiah and Ezra and all of that, but you'll notice this was a very planned out thing. It seemed very intentional with what is named and where they're at and where they end up, what gets a little bit more attention. And you wonder how did that happen? Did that just happen? You know, Nehemiah just like haphazardly, okay, you go here, you go here. Is that what Nehemiah was doing? Remember, and I don't know how far uh, you've read chapter 1 or 2, but when Nehemiah went through this process, and then he finally asked the king of Persia, hey, can you support, you know, we need all these supplies, and they get back, Nehemiah's first three days back in the city, he didn't do anything. He didn't gather teams, he, he kind of acclimated Maybe he's taking walks around the city, maybe weeping, praying, but he's thinking. And then, after two or three days of acclimating, then he gathers just a few trusted people. And at night, they go around the city gates. It was an intentional plan by Nehemiah, all formed from getting his feet on the ground, Looking at the situation, then with a couple of people, they go around at night. Why would they go at night? Anybody have an idea why they would go at night? Yeah. Quiet, less people bugging them. Yeah. Have you seen this YouTube video? You know, nobody's doing that to Nehemiah. He gets to actually go around and see what's going on. Maybe some of the areas just needed to be rebuilt a little bit, that they were already kind of still there. Maybe, maybe other parts had to be completely rebuilt. But he takes the time and makes a plan. Well, why would you plan as a leader? You know what you're doing. This wasn't just some haphazard thing. They often say around construction projects, right, the the work is really the prep and figuring out and looking at what you got before the structure goes up. And that's what Nehemiah, I would propose, did very, very strategically. Now, there's some things that stick out to me in this chapter. And you'll see it in verse 1. If you still have your Bible open, who is doing the work first? Who's mentioned first? What kind of a priest? A high priest. That's the, the dude with the nice flowing robes and the special. Now, he would have had to take that off to pick up a hammer and chisel. Here's a leader getting on his hands and knees and doing the work. There might be a leadership principle in there for us. You're never too high and mighty to get your hands dirty. And we say that around here at our church. If you want to be a leader in our church family, you, gotta be able to, you need to be able to clean a toilet if you have to. Servant leadership. I love looking at the list of all the people who are helping out. Not just the high priest, but then the other priest joined in. Lead by example. Why do those other priests who also had nice gowns on, they see the lead guy doing that. Well, I'm I need to help him. Leading by example, that's a leadership principle right there. See, you you can read right into this what's going on here. Nehemiah, as the main leader, governor, he made a plan. Looked around first before he just jumped in, made a plan. Then you're seeing these people modeling what it means to work hard, to put your your shoulder to the work. And there's a whole list. If you look through Chapter 3, you have a bunch of people listed. You have, like, uh, goldsmiths. I guess those are people that smith gold. I don't know, not the smartest guy around, but that's what it feels like to me. You got goldsmiths, bankers—I don't know—we call them bankers. A craftsman. You have uh, some some merchants, some rulers. Again, rulers are jumping into the work. You have perfumers that are jumping into the work, which is interesting to me. That's kind of like me doing a construction project. You don't want a perfumer. But these guys, they jumped in. They're like, I'm not going to be the only one not getting work. So I make perfume all day, but I'm going to actually grab a chisel and I'm going to help too. So you have all these work, walk, walks of people, government officials. And then you have fathers and sons. And as we're going to see in chat, verse 12, even daughters. All right, so all people doing this thing. It's a rebuilding, holy all skate. Except they're not skating, they're building. It's a holy all-skate and everybody's participating. We have like 40 leaders mentioned just in chapter 3. 45 sections of the wall. We have about 10 or so gates repaired. Six of which are key gates like that sheep gate. All of these sections done by everyday average people and leaders. Everybody got their hands dirty. A holy all-skate. That northern wall, the Sheep Gate, part of the reason that was important for them to give extra attention to, scholars have found a pretty big thoroughfare, meaning like a highway, an old ancient highway, that happened just north, which would be kind of north of Jerusalem proper. That's probably where a lot of the big trade people came in. Uh, You have the caravans from the east and the west, and, 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 you know, Jerusalem's kind of strategically set. In, in the ancient Holy Land, for all of those places to converge, and they think there was a big access road just north of the Sheep Gate. So it makes sense to me, for defense, you better make sure that gate is well secured. And so they spent extra time, which is where you start and where it ends. So let me just point out a couple other verses, too, that might, might interest you. If you've still got your Bible open, look at that verse 5. We have this group of people, and I'm going to hash the name because I don't know Hebrew, Some of you that do, great, uh, I'll do my best. The Tekoaites. I think that's how you say it, Tekoaites. And we find out that these Tekoaites were doing some repairs in verse 5. But their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work. I find it interesting that Nehemiah points that out. That may be something for later. Uh, These people did not want to bother themselves and do any of the hard work. So these Tekoaites are doing work even when their leadership was not doing the good work. We've already seen in the list some leaders were jumping in, modeling by example. But these Tekoaite nobles, they were too good to get their their hands dirty. In verse 12, we find out that sons and daughters were helping with the work. Which is pretty cool that Nehemiah points that out because normally kind of the... The big re- records are for the men. And here we go, in a very patriarchal society, the daughters are mentioned as putting their hard work involved. And I think it's beautiful that this family mentions the daughters are right there with the sons doing the hard work. That's verse 12. Now look at verse 13. Now, at verse 13, we're at the valley gate. You, you see where the valley gate is? Kind of there. And it, the reason it's called the valley gate is because there's, there's kind of a valley next to it. So this, these naming things, I'm figuring it out now. But you have the valley gate. And here, the people working on the valley gate not only did that gate, but they kept going and did like 500 yards of wall work. That's about a third of a mile. Pretty amazing. Completed by, and they're named, Hannon and the residents of Zenoa. They get their names mentioned. Right? And then we get to verse 27, and we get to meet these Tekoaites again. Am I saying that right? Tekoaites. So they they were building right in verse 5, but their nobles were just too busy. They they couldn't handle that menial work, right? We come back to verse 27, and we find the Tekoaites at it again. And and it says here in verse 27 after after him, the Tekoahites repaired another section opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophel. So, Ophel there. Right? So they're working on this, and they what does they do? they they got about a, a whole other section that they do opposite the Great Projecting Tower as far as the, as far as the Wall of Ophel. So these guys are getting like extra credit. So not only is this an all-skate for these folks, but they're getting extra credit on this repair work. Fun fact, Tacoa. That's where the tekoa are from. I know I'm a genius. But the Tacoa area is about that little, little teeny town about I don't know, 10, 12 miles south of Jerusalem. And there was, a, there was a prophet that came from that hometown. Anybody know? This is like a Bible nerd moment for you. The, the prophet's name started with an a. It's a. Minor prophet Amos. His hometown is Tekoa. Anybody get that one? A few of you? Okay. Bible nerd moment. But here's something else pretty cool. Archaeology has helped us out here in the Bible world. It continues to help us out. And one of the things they've done is they have done some excavation, and they have found they've gone down enough to get to the sections that Nehemiah would have been building. So we actually have photos of what they were working on. This is what's now called Nehemiah's Wall. This is showing some of the intricate work that they did. Now, obviously, it's over time, and it's sunk and all of that, but this is attributed to that time frame, and it was an article in the Jerusalem Post about 15 years ago that showed this photo, and they know that this was at the same time frame because they found pottery in the same zone. And so they know this was actually built in Nehemiah's time. Pretty, pretty awesome, right? Well, let's, let's go back now to you and me for a second. Would you have taken the time to write down all these names? Of people. I mean, that would have taken Nehemiah a bit of an investment. You know, to have to go to talk to people, where are you from, what's your name, what's your dad's name, right? This, this would have taken a bit of time. Would you have invested the time as a leader to get their names? Maybe you would, maybe you wouldn't, I don't know. Maybe if you had time, I, I, th- I find it interesting he spent all that time to do that. And I would surmise that the reason, or at least one of the reasons... Nehemiah wanted the names and where they're from and they're, Well, there's probably two reasons. One, they would eventually repopulate the city, which is kind of a big deal. They're going to repopulate. People are kind of living out the, the outskirts, and they're probably going to start repopulating the city. So we need, to na- we need to know names uh, and where the original houses were and that sort of thing. So, so repopulation, yeah, that's another thing. But I think there's a leadership principle here that Nehemiah wanted to know the names of the people that he was leading. He wanted to know their names who was working here, so I know who this person is, I know who this person is. It's a great leadership principle. If you're someone in leadership right now, if you're maybe for a company, you're a manager, you're an advisor, you're a supervisor, get to know the people who are working for you. Names matter. So Nehemiah wanted to know who they were. Names matter. He, he, He saw dignity in every one of these families. Even mentioning the family that had their daughters working hard. Great leadership principle there. So gut check. How how are you with work? Do you like work? Would you say you like work? See, because even if you like the work you're doing, there are some days that are hard. Even with something you love to do, if you feel like you're doing the thing that God's wired you to do, you still have hard days. But what would you think? I mean, do you find that sometimes with your work you can tend to complain? Sometimes we do that. What about... The work that maybe God is calling you to do. Maybe that might be the work of loving your neighbor or the work of serving, maybe in our church family, or serving in the community. How is your attitude and your posture toward that? Are you willing to get your hands dirty and join God's divine all skate that we all have work that we get to do? Where's your attitude on that? I think it's a good gut check for where we're at. Because God has designed work for you to do and me to do. And it's the kind of work that was set before you were even born. We say around here a lot, right? Before you were born, God loved you more than you could possibly imagine, right? But God has also, before you were ever born, designed work specifically for you to do. So my only point today is engage in the work that God's called you to. Engage in the work that God has for you. Don't sit on the sidelines, get all suited up, but never get in the game. Actually, do the work that God's called you to do. It's a beautiful thing. It's a fulfilling thing. It shouldn't be a burden. It should be something that's a fulfillment, especially because God has wired us. You don't believe me? Okay. Ephesians 2.10. 2, if you have a Bible, Ephesians 2.10. I'm going to prove this to you. It says this. For we are created, we are we are his created work, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand so that we can do them. God had already prepared way before you ever took your first breath. There was going to be some special work that you get to do that's designed for you. And we are we are God's creative people, created in Christ Jesus to do good works so that he's already prepared in advance. So what's, what project is God calling you to do right now? I'm wondering how many of you are sitting on the sidelines and you've not said, yes, I'm going to do it. Ask the Lord this week, what is the work that you've called me to do that I, maybe I've just not been paying attention to or I've been lazy about or I just haven't jumped in? What is God calling you to do? Engage in the work God has for you. We're going to see, and already we've seen in Nehemiah, some great leadership principles that we've already talked about. But I also see some humility that Nehemiah, too, was also doing the work. And We'll find that later. But he was jumping right in there with them. So we see humility and a willingness to get your hands dirty. That's a great leadership principle. Another one is this, desiring to honor people and know their names. Great principle. Who needs your time and attention? Who needs to hear their name said? How are you doing, John? How are you doing? God has called us for great work. Imagine all of us saying yes to that holy all skate that God has called us to, to participate in the work that he's designed for each of us. I think that would be an amazing testimony to the world because the scriptures also say when they see the good works that we do, they glorify God. Imagine a group of people doing that. Let's pray. Father, you're powerful and mighty. I thank you for your love and faithfulness to us. Thank you for the work that you've done and you call us to be part of, that we get to partner with you to do your kingdom work, even in our time, in our culture, in our place. Father, empower us to hear from you, to know what work you've designed for each of us to do and engage in that. And Father, as we join this holy all skate, that you would do immeasurably more than we could ask or imagine according to your power. In Jesus' name, amen.